This is W. Cleon Skousen. The recordings you are about to hear have an interesting history. In 1966, I was asked by President David O. McKay to return to the Brigham Young University and teach classes in religion. Up to that time, I had enjoyed a rather varied career. My first 16 years were with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, that is the FBI. Then the church asked me to come to BYU. After five years, I was given a leave of absence to become chief of police in Salt Lake City. By 1966, when President McKay called, I was serving as the national field director for the American Security Council. But during all those years, I had been carefully studying the four standard works of the church and lecturing rather widely on each one of them. So upon returning to the BYU, I was asked to teach the Book of Mormon and the Old Testament. President McKay also gave me permission to prepare my own textbooks for both of these courses. I thought the Old Testament required three textbooks. They were entitled, number one, The First 2,000 Years, which covers the Bible from Adam to Abraham. The next one was The Third Thousand Years, which covers the Bible from Abraham to David. And finally, The Fourth Thousand Years, which covers the Bible from David to Christ. My classes started out rather small, but by the third year, I had the privilege of teaching over a thousand students per week. These new textbooks also took a while to catch on. This was particularly true of the Old Testament. I included in these texts the wealth of new material revealed to the church in modern times and which very few people were studying. In fact, the Old Testament at that time was the least popular of all the standard works. However, before long, the Old Testament textbooks began to be widely read among the general membership of the church. For example, the first 2,000 years ultimately sold over half a million copies. You can well imagine how exciting it was to teach from these new books. However, I never recorded any of the classes, and after I retired from BYU, I deeply regretted that it was not possible to provide recordings for the many people who requested them. Nevertheless, just recently... During September 2002, a veritable miracle occurred when Dr. Roy L. Robbins of Colorado Springs in Colorado contacted my son Harold and said that 30 years ago he had taken a course on the Old Testament and had recorded all of the class discussions on the official BYU sound system, so the tapes were crisp and clearly audible. Dr. Robbins also announced that he was shipping the recordings to us. It was a thrill to review the tapes and see how perfectly they had been preserved. These are the lessons we will be presenting in a few moments. First, I should point out that right at the time these recordings were being made, the new prophet, President Harold B. Lee, was reviving the earlier policy of President David O. McKay to encourage the members of the church to study the Constitution. 
These leaders wanted us to find the founders' answers to many of the problems which were plaguing the nations. I had written several books on the Constitution, so the students brought up some of their political questions in my Old Testament classes. This is why these recordings contain an occasional comment which I made in response to some problems the students had asked me to explain. I should also mention that every once in a while my voice will drop a little when I leave the podium to point to a map or refer to notes on the blackboard. However, Harold has adjusted the sound whenever this occurs, so usually nothing is lost. I've already referred to the three textbooks which go along with this course. These are not absolutely necessary, but they contain many valuable details for the serious student of the Old Testament. Copies of these books may be obtained from most church bookstores or ordered directly from our website, which is listed on the label of each CD, as well as on the back cover of your CD binder. Now we begin our study of the Old Testament. May the Lord bless you as you become better acquainted with one of the greatest scriptures among the four standard works. Now, as we start in on the Bible, try and keep up on your scripture. How many of you actually read the Bible, the Bible part of it? How many of you actually read it? And that's pretty good. That's about two-thirds. Okay, let's uh, Tuesday, 100%, because this entire book is only up to the... Um, um, oh, what is it about the, uh, well, Genesis, Abraham, yeah, it isn't even all of Genesis. So you can read the whole book. It's only two, two minutes per page in the Bible. So keep up on your Bible so that um, you can spin right to it. Let me now just ask a question or two right off the bat just for fun. How many of you know uh, what century belongs to Moses? Moses. I come right off easy about about what 1570 for birth we we usually say 1500 if you can remember 1500 for Moses so let me give you some hook dates today if you'll just take a few notes this will help you all the rest of your college career now there are only a dozen or so of these and uh, they they need to be memorized with the identity of the person with whom it's associated all right 4000 BC is the first one 4000 BC, and this is the date of the fall. It is not the date of Adam's birth. We do not have any idea how long Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden or had an anti-mortal experience before they, were, they fell. But the fall of the earth and the fall of Adam and Eve is dated at 4000 BC. The next important date is 3500 BC, and um, this is... Um, uh, Enoch. And this is the next great dispensation. Adam was still alive, actually, but uh, getting along in years, and um, the people were getting wicked, and the Lord needed a new missionary uh, effort, so he sent Enoch into the world, and he went out and had a marvelous experience. He was a stutterer and very uh, anxious not to go on his mission, and, and the Lord said, I can cure you of uh, this speech impediment, and that even the mountains will shake when you speak. So, that worked out real good. 
And um, the, next, the next one, Enoch, of course, was translated, but he left his son, Methuselah, his uh, grandson, Lamech, and then a great new dispensation started out. Uh, in fact, this little boy was born two years after the city of Enoch was translated. And this hits us. This is the dispensation of Noah. And the big date that we remember for Noah is the flood, of course, and that's, that's 2344 B.C. And we can hit that right on target. We know the dates from Adam right on down. Seth was born when his father, when Adam was 130. And we know how old Seth was when Canaan was born, and how old Canaan was when Enos was born, how old Enos was when Mahalalel was born, how old Mahalalel was when Jared was born, how old Jared was when Enoch was born. And uh, we can come right on down, hit it right on the nose at 2344. Now, this is kind of an odd date, but this is the way you remember it. The first great number one universal flood came two, three, four, birth, four. See? One, two, three, four, four. Okay. <laughs> then you erase the one. <laughs> Representing the great flood. Now, you'll never forget that. You'll be amazed. And people in priesthood or relief society, they'll say, well, see, when was the flood? About 1500 B.C., wasn't it? You'll say, no, it was 2344 B.C. Yeah. As I mentioned yesterday, you have to stay very humble when you know that much. But that's that's... That's the advantage of having specifics in your mind. So in our class, we do expect you to memorize a few things. These are nodal dates, we call them, or hook dates. Okay, the next uh, big date, that was the flood. Uh, the next um, big date is 2000 B.C. Now, from Adam to Noah was ten generations. And from Noah to Abraham was ten generations. And Noah was still alive when Abraham was born. In fact, uh, Abraham was 28 when Father Noah finally passed away 350 years after the flood. And the Chronicle in the 11th chapter of Genesis watches these two old timers from before the flood, Noah and his son Shem. They used to live on and on. All their descendants keep dying off. They live on and on. Word of wisdom or something before the flood. So they lived a long, long time. In fact, the Book of Mormon says why they shortened the lives of people after the flood. It was done on purpose. Um, okay, that's Abraham. 2000 B.C. is Abraham. Why does it say it? Because before the flood, the Lord had to have them live a thousand years because he couldn't get the gospel to them. He didn't want anybody to die until they'd had a chance to choose. That means that those who died, when they finally did die, if they had not accepted the gospel, they went immediately into that prison in the spirit world with those who had rejected the gospel on the first exposure. And they had to wait until the time of Christ to be preached to the second time. And of course, terrestrial is the highest that they can receive if they've rejected it once. But anyway, the Book of Mormon says that they were allowed to live, I'm sure he had other purposes too, he had a lot of population to unload. I think we'll find the pre-flood population was probably terrific. But anyway, now life was gradually reduced first down to about 200 and then to 150. Joseph was 110. Moses was 120. So it came right down. So now the average age is about 70. That's where we're pushing it up. Okay, the, uh, Abraham's son was named what? Isaac, and he's 1900. A century later, wasn't that convenient? And the Lord set this up just so in our Old Testament classes we could memorize the dates uh, easily. 
These aren't their birth dates. It just means that as of that time they were alive. And who was Isaac's son? Jacob. And he came at 1800, you see, just another century later. That was nice. And Jacob's um, number one son, or his heir, was whom? Your great ancestor Joseph, and he was in 1700. And then his brother Levi had a, um, a grandson who became very famous, and his name was Moses. And uh, Moses was born 1570, but his work was really uh, nearly 80 years later, so we put down the date 1500 for Moses and Joshua, the great Ephraimite general, our ancestor. We have to get in there somewhere, you know. Okay, Moses the Levite and Joshua the Ephraimite. Now, um, 1400 was the beginning of the Hebrew Dark Ages. And they went into apostasy and fertility worship and uh, he hedonism and heathenism. Our next great date is when they came out of it and got a prophet in charge of their government uh, but it was too strenuous to live under it, and they therefore asked for a, a monarchy. So 1100 B.C. belongs to Samuel and the king who replaced him, Saul. 1400 on down is the, we don't know the dates. That's Deborah, Gideon, all the famous judges, and there were, they called them judges. They weren't really, they were just heroes. That's the period of Samson, Gideon, Deborah, a lot of your Old Testament, famous Old Testament Bible stories are during those 300 years of dark ages. Okay, who replaced Saul? David. And so we hit uh, 1,000. Isn't that nice? That's a nodal date. 1,000. David. The golden age. David. How long did it last? 70 years. 70 years? You mean that's what the Jews are talking about? 70 years? The golden age? Saul. So, how long do you think the golden age of Greece lasted? Under Pericles. Forty years, that's all. The Greeks lived ever afterwards in the shadows uh, or the reflected glory of those 40 years under Pericles. You, we take tours and we go up um, on the Acropolis and we show them the um, beautiful structures, that uh, the remnants of which still uh, are there, all built within 40 years under Pericles, way back there in the 4th century B.C. Sixty years of a golden age, all it lasted. What will they call the golden age of the United States? It won't be a very long one. You'll, you'll be amazed. How sh it's it surprising how, how shallow human nature is. It cannot endure the ultimate in success very long. Even in the Book of Mormon days, uh, their great golden age that didn't actually explode until 400, uh, nearly 400 A.D., um, it didn't last uh, much uh, over a century. It was already going downhill with Gadiantans beginning to appear after a little over a century. Human beings have difficulty preserving these great golden ages. All right, your next um, important date is um, 922. Ten tribes separate from Judah and Levi. 922. 900, your great prophet is Elijah. 900 is Elijah. 800 is Elisha. 700 is Isaiah. 600 is Lehi.
Daniel, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, with Habakkuk and a few others thrown in, but you remember those big ones. Now, these were all buddy prophets. They were all together. Not one of them mentions the other. They just simply said, there are a lot of other prophets around. Meanwhile, this is my mission. And they tell you all about their mission. Never mention their, their brethren. So we had, da we had um, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Lehi. And, of course, Nephi, after they had left Jerusalem. 600. Now, that's far enough. Uh, when we get into the next semester, I'll give you the remaining dates that are more technical on the destruction of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple and the conquest by this, uh, uh, the, the Syrians and so forth. But these are enough nodal dates for this semester. Now, when you, when you hear Abraham, what do you think of? 2,000. Is it just like that? 2,000. Once you got 2,000 for Abraham, when was Melchizedek? When's Melchizedek? 2000. He's a contemporary. See, so you just stack it right on there. That's why we call it a hook date. Anything related to Abraham uh, is hooked to Abraham. And you can, uh, you can have great success with those, okay? Any, um, any questions on that part? All together? 600 was a very special date for the Lord. Among the Greeks, you see, he raised up Salon. Uh, we had the Buddha rising up, you see, at that time. We had Confucius rising up that century. Um, the, the great leaders, and the Book of Mormon says, for their particular level of civilization, are raised up from generation to generation for their benefit. And when we trace back through history, we find that 600 B.C. was really a great century. They just Every people had some of its greatest leaders that century. Other thoughts? And as, as you know through your Bible history and Book of Mormon history, uh, Jeremiah had his, his position over in Jerusalem to tell the king what to do. He didn't do it. Threw the prophet in prison, almost killed him, but uh, at least he got told. And Lehi heard Jeremiah talking and said, this is terrible. See, he was a member of the local Rotary Club. And uh, here's Jeremiah going up and down saying that this city's going to be destroyed. It had never been so magnificent. And they had just gone through several battles with the Babylonians and everything was settled down now. And so Lehi went out to the Lord and says, please don't destroy the city. And down came the fire and it rested on a stone right in front of him. And he was told many things and he was on his way for a trip. And he staggered home and went to bed. And then he had a marvelous vision and his calling. Get out there and help Jeremiah. So he did and almost got killed because he taught the coming of Jesus Christ. It wasn't so much the destruction of Jerusalem that got him killed. It was he taught the coming of Jesus Christ and said that there, his own people would kill him. And they said, that is a myth. When he comes, he'll come in power and glory and make us the rulers of the world. No, Lehi said, that's the second time. Oh, you believe in that mixed up. you got the double story complex. We don't want any of that stuff spread around among our people. So they chased him home, and the Lord says, no, don't go back because they're planning to kill you. You get out in the desert fast. So he did. That's the Book of Mormon opening up during the days of Jeremiah. So you can see how each of these prophets fitted. The Babylonians grabbed 10,000 Jews and packed them off to Babylon. 25-year-old boy among them, young fellow among them, was named Ezekiel. Five years later, the Lord said, we need a prophet over here among these refugees. You go down and start talking to them, will you? And he went down, and he was there seven days. 
he just couldn't get going. He just couldn't deliver the message. So the Lord said, all right, go back home. Go, go home, go home, go home. Start all over with you. And so he gave him a lot of teaching devices to teach him how to be a prophet. That's Ezekiel. And Daniel, of course, he was just a young fellow that had been scooped up even uh, six years earlier with uh, several other very outstanding uh, um, fellows, young fellows there in Jerusalem that were on the honors program. And he took him up and uh, pushed him over to Babylon and taught him the Babylonian language and, and made uh, Daniel, his prime minister, and his three buddies the mayors of the city of Babylon. It's a great story. Now we're going to handle all that in detail as we go along, but that's the reason why there were so many prophets at this time. They all had their position. Any, any other question now? All right, now we opened up by discovering that we now know as a result of the restoration of the gospel how Moses received the original book of Genesis. And how did he get it? By direct revelation. And much of it was taken out. Over half of it was removed by men who said, oh, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. And um, so about half of it was gone by the time the King James translation was made from the available manuscripts. When the gospel was restored, the Lord put it right back so that we now have the first opening chapters, first six chapters, uh, just the way Moses wrote them. And uh, where can that be found? in the book of Moses and the Pearl of Great Price. And uh, it's a treasure house. And so I quote from both the Bible and the book of Moses as we open up our story. Now, when Moses saw his first vision, um, he was so impressed with what the Lord was showing him because, you see, he'd seen the burning bush and heard the voice, but now he stood in the presence of Jehovah. And he saw that he was in the image of Jehovah. The Bible was that it said that we were in the image of God. It was literally true. Here's the son of God prior to his birth to Mary, whose name is Jehovah, who's going to be the son of Elohim the Father, standing in the spirit in front of Moses. And Moses can see that uh, um, we are literally in his image. And he said, now I will show you the workmanship of my hands, meaning myself and my father. Here's what we've done together. And Moses saw our galaxy, at least our galaxy. And he saw Earth's inhabited by human beings, and oh, marvelous, what's next? And all of a sudden the vision closed, and the Lord was gone. Oh, he said, I didn't even get to ask. I, I had all my questions. I was going to ask all these things. And he said, oh, I'm, going to, I'm going to talk to the Lord again sometime. I didn't get to ask any of my questions. So when he had the courage uh, to do it again, he got down on his knees, and he said to the Lord, now I want to talk to you again, please, and this time I want to ask all my questions. And all of a sudden a person appeared in front of him, Moses said, who are you? He said, I am the son of God. Worship me. Well, Moses said, um, this is strange. Last time I had to be, I, I was animated. I was transfigured. I, something wonderful happened to me. But all of a sudden you show and I haven't been changed at all. The last time I was so weak afterwards, I was on the ground for several hours before I recovered from it. Got my physical strength back. Just the, as the prophet Joseph says, it, it affected him. Um, he said, I don't, I don't feel any change. And uh, Lucifer began to be angry. Are you going to worship me or not? Well, no, something's wrong here. I, I don't think you're an authentic thing. I, I, got a, I got a credibility gap going on here. And, uh, and Lucifer got so uh, uh, unhappy with him that he just ripped back the veil and let Moses see the hosts of hell over whom Satan ruled. And it just scared the wits out of Moses. So he started praying with vigor, 
uh, not for any galaxies, you know, just save his life. And finally, Lucifer moved back away, and the Savior, or Jehovah, as he was known in the Old Testament, appeared before Moses again and said, Now I will show you these things. You've had the test. Just wanted you to see the difference between light and darkness. Um, it, it, in one passage it says that, and Satan knew not the mind of God, meaning that his knowledge of the future is limited. He can anticipate some things, but not everything. And when we go through the temple, that's emphasized to us also. And um, apparently he's successful in getting a lot of beings to worship him. He got um, uh, the prophet Balaam, you see, turned and joined him, a true prophet who apostatized. So once in a while, he apparently um, is able to make it. In any event, he tried to impress, um, well, let me give you another example. As we're going to find out, he's going to get the first two generations of Adam and Eve with exactly that kind of an appearance. They're going to turn and worship him. So we'll come to that. That'll be a good example. of. of he's playing the percentages. Okay? Yes? who lived uh, on the um, eastern horn of the Red Sea where the Midianites were located. And you see he's down about, he's a descendant of Abraham through Keturah. Let's see, he's down, well, several generations. The likelihood is that the calling the Lord had for Moses, and I'm only speculating, was so dramatic, so different, a whole new dispensation of the gospel. It's sort of like uh, Enoch, you see. Here's Adam alive. And the Lord comes along, he said, all right, now, Enoch, I want a whole new punch to this thing. I want the whole, every nation warned. I want you to gather out all the righteous and put them in one city and build temples there, and ultimately we'll translate it. Well, same situation, new thrust, apparently. Did I see another hand? Yes. You say, why will he not? Yes. He didn't let them lead. Uh, no prophets were allowed to lead the people astray. Balaam, for example, he went over to the heathens. He was not allowed to lead Israel astray. Um, and in the 43rd section of the Doctrine and Covenants, it promises this generation that no man who leads this church will be allowed to lead it astray. Not that he couldn't fall, but if he does, the last thing the Lord will tell him to do is to announce to the church that a successor has been appointed. That'll be his last act. So um, we are promised that we don't have to look for the one mighty and strong down in Mexico or uh, in Arizona or up in the high Uintas or, or any place. Or, um, these, um, the prophet of the Lord is at 47 East South Temple. And, uh, any other questions now? All right. Now, now we've, we've found out now where we got Genesis. So we approach Genesis with much more confidence. But we barely get into Genesis and we all of a sudden go through a trauma. Because it talks about an earth that was created and um, it was divided so that the sea water and the dry land were separate and one was congealed and the other was not. And then in due process of time we have uh, a, a, an arrangement with the astronomical bodies and then finally we had plant life, and insect life, and bird life, and animal life, and last of all, human life. And then it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when I, the Lord God, created the heavens and the earth, and everything before it was in the earth. 
What's that mean? For I, the Lord God, had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was yet no flesh upon the earth. Oh, wait a minute, we just got all everybody over there. On the sixth day, we got everybody created, and the Lord said that all, all the hosts of them were acceptable. So in the book of Moses, it's a little clearer where it says, For in the Spirit created I them. So this suggests to us that the first chapter is entirely the Spirit creation. And then it brings us down to the temple creation, and Moses doesn't tell us a word about it. How'd that planet get there? How did the temple part get here? That's like telling us, um, uh, well, um, Cleon, I'll tell you how it was. Um, you um, were, went through the spirit world, and you had these following experiences, and then you came down and were born in Raymond, Alberta, Canada, and uh, here you are in Provo. Yeah, but um, who's my mother and father? And... Um, what about all of that up there? I want to know more about that. Well, Moses left it out, but Abraham put it in, as nearly as we can tell. Now, there's a little division in the church, not much, but a little. The view I am now giving you is the traditional view that appeared in the priesthood manuals and was preached by Brother Orson Pratt, and B.H. Robert put it into his book, The Gospel and Man's Relationship to Deity. And that's the one, the only one I knew about. I didn't know there was a little confusion in the kingdom on that subject. And so far as I can tell, as far as I'm able to uh, judge, uh, it fits the scripture better than other approaches to it. So that's the way I put it in my book. But notice now, let me just trace on the board very, very briefly now what happened. We have one, two, three, four, five, six, seventh day. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Moses starts out and gives each one of the days what happened on them, except that man is created right here on day number six. Abraham comes along and covers this in about two verses and goes down here and says, and then the gods began to prepare the earth. And he says the same thing, except that instead of saying, and plants came forth on the earth, he says, and the earth was prepared so that it would pr bring forth plants. And the seas were prepared so that they would bring forth certain types of life. And uh, the air was prepared so it would sustain certain types of life. And when he gets over to the, to the sixth day, uh, man isn't created. The earth is prepared so that it will, it will support this very sophisticated type of um, uh, living matter. And Abraham indicates that man came into the earth on the seventh day. Now, this is our broadest hint that we've got a temporal creation in Abraham in which he doesn't say actually how the earth was prepared so it would do these things. So that gives geology students, you say, a wide open field. And a lot of speculation is possible. And uh, uh, they have a meeting of the minds on some things, disagreement on others. Uh, but we should not quarrel about it. We should just put our ideas together and then be patient and humble because in the 101st section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord says, at the beginning of the millennium, I'll show you just how I did it, and it will be knowledge which no man knew. But then he tells us that the earth prior to its fall was only turning over every thousand, thousand years instead of 24 hours. Now, that would affect things, wouldn't it? And, that, uh, and the brethren have taught us that um, um, we were originally very close to Kolob, about 30,000 light years closer in. And that after the, the beginning of the millennium, 
uh, or incidental layer two will be moved back in again. You see we're two-thirds of the way out in the galaxy now. We're way out here in the cold. And that we'll be spinning back in again. So um, there's been a lot of things happen to the earth. A lot of things happen to the earth. And we stand very humble in the presence of our God who says, after all, you are here, aren't you? Yes. And you're on an earth, aren't you? Yes. And I'm going to tell you how I set it up, how I prepared it. So if you can sort of keep this in mind, don't let it bother you one way or the other. But as you read these two books, I think it will be helpful to you. Studying it the, the traditional way the brethren did, um, this is the spirit creation, and Moses goes along, and he has us created here, and all the hosts of them, and then God rested on this day, and on that Sabbath sacred day, placed man in upon the earth. The prophet Joseph Smith and the Doctrine and Covenants verifies the fact that man came into this present temporal earth in the seventh day, created in the pre-existence on the sixth day, but brought into this earth on the seventh day. And here you have the preparations that are described. And incidental to the preparations, I want you to notice something. As it says, and the gods commanded that the dry land came up, come up, and they watched until they were obeyed. And the gods commanded this, and they watched until they were obeyed. You see, our early brethren knew there was intelligence in matter. It was taught by the prophet Joseph Smith explained it to the brethren and mentioned it in his diary, but didn't tell us the details. So we go to Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball, and they say that in the molecules and atoms, there are many, many little intelligent entities organized together. Um, science is just beginning to find it out, that you can get a psychosomatic reaction from flowers and, and so forth by changing environmental situations. You're aware of this, these tests. Well, the brethren say this is true also of rock and of just ordinary element. And so the Lord says to water, reorganize, please. We need wine. High grade, please. High grade. Very nice wine. So um, this will give you some, uh, some stimulating mental ideas of how wonderful it is to study the standard works of the church now that we have the restoration of the gospel. Final thought? Yes, he gave him some knowledge of the temporal creation. That's really what I was reaching for. Well, we don't know the details, do we? Uh, we go studying in the rocks and we see these great layers of limestone laid down by thousands of generations of these little, little tiny creatures. Uh, my, that was an, uh, an elaborate effort to uh, get that set up for us and all the coal and the oil and little gold scattered around here and there to make it interesting. Okay, all right. We'll see you on Tuesday then.